Alright. Um, we're going to do something a little different. We've already done something a little different. We're going to do something else a little different uh, this morning. Uh, normally what we do here is we preach through books. We go through books and preach on every verse line by line. and I think that's right, but this morning we're going to do something topical. <clears throat> so instead of one passage for preaching, we're going to have multiple uh, passages for preaching. Um, we're going to look at two things in particular, and it's what we've already read about this morning. Uh, first, we're going to be considering the crucifixion of our Lord, and particularly what is known as the seven words, or the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And with this being Resurrection Sunday, this being Easter, I believe it would only be fitting if we look at the resurrection of our Lord as well. So, if you're wanting to follow along with all of these various passages, um, we're going to start in Luke chapter 23. And we're going to be starting in uh, verse 26. Twenty-three, and then we're starting in verse twenty-six. Before uh, before I start reading that passage, because uh, it is my custom to pray after the passage, but since there's multiple passages, I'm going to pray before. So, if you would join me in prayer, <clears throat> Father in heaven above, I pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. I pray that we would all render the honor and the glory that is due to the name of Jesus Christ. Forgive us of our sin, and thank you that in him we have that forgiveness. In his name we pray. Amen. Alright, Luke 23, picking up in verse 26. And as they led him away, <clears throat> they seized one Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say, To the mountains fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. <clears throat> Jesus had been falsely condemned as a criminal, spat upon, beaten, and mocked, both by the Jews and the Romans. We read the account in Matthew this morning all the way through. The high priest and the Sanhedrin judged him guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? 
after Jesus was delivered by Pilate for crucifixion, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns and just stop for a minute and think how twisted unintended that that is. They actually took the time to twist this together. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And these were the soldiers of the one who had washed his hands of the matter. Rightly determining Jesus to be an innocent man. The one who had charge over them said, he's innocent. And they still treated him this way. These men spit on him, took the reed, and struck him in the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. It was these Roman soldiers who nailed him to the tree. His own people, the Jews, who had demanded that it be so. And even as he hung there on the cross, the mockery continued. It wasn't enough that he was already hanging there. They had to continue to mock him. What hatred these people had for him. I can't just kill him. I got to humiliate him in the process. It's got to be awful. Think about what, I think it was Seth that read the first one. Oh, we, we can't put this money that Judas just threw back at us because it's not lawful to put blood money in the, in the treasury for the temple. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, the, the blood money that you paid out for this innocent man to be murdered. And you know he's innocent because you wouldn't have to pay somebody to lie. And yet, he does not call down legions of angels from heaven to consume them all. Though we very well could have. In fact, in another place in scripture, he even said as much. No. Instead, we see him pleading with his father for the very ones who were humiliating and killing him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The first words of Jesus on the cross were a prayer of intercession. He's hanging there, bloody, beaten, dehydrated, humiliated. And his first words while hanging there are not a prayer of concern for himself. It's not a call that God would rain down vengeance from heaven. Ironically, it's not even a prayer for those that loved him. The great and true high priest of God's people prays for the very ones who participated in his murder in ignorance. Matthew Henry comments on this saying, The crucifiers of Christ were kept in ignorance by their rulers and had prejudices against him instilled into them so that in what they did against Christ and his doctrine... They thought they did God's service, such as to be pitied and prayed for. 
This prayer of Christ was answered not long after when many of those that had uh, had a hand in his death were converted by Peter's preaching. End quote. Peter would preach to the Jews in Solomon's portico, Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. What God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. And another uh, passage where Peter is preaching um, this is actually the day of Pentecost that I'm referencing now. Um, you heard them say, may his blood be on us and our children. They call a curse of God upon themselves and their children. Something we're going over Wednesday. We're going over this concept of covenant. And quite often we see in scripture that the covenant is made with you and your seed. That's normal in scripture. Well, they do kind of the reverse. May his blood be on us and our children. Peter, preaching under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says to them, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, for the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off. They called a curse upon themselves, and those who never repented certainly received it. Those for whom Christ died received the blessing of the Father, the Spirit. Why? Because the one they murdered prayed for them. Now, if the Holy One of God, under these the worst of circumstances, could pray for sinners, and even more for those persecuting and sinning against Him, how much more ought we, wretched sinners ourselves, pray for our enemies? Jesus would have been perfectly justified in calling down legions of angels, in calling down fire from heaven, so that all of these people were consumed. We're not. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I think we've talked about this here before, but just in case. Um, in that day, being the son of a father included the idea that you would be like the father. It wasn't just biology. There was more at play. If you were the carpenter's son, well, you showed that because you were a carpenter yourself. Or whatever profession you want to say. If you're the son of, then you are becoming like the father. Right? That, that's the idea here. Uh, this is actually seen in a conversation earlier between Jesus and uh, the Jews. That's recorded in John 8. In which this idea plays a central role in the back and forth. The Jews claim to be free because they were the children of Abraham. That goes back to that covenantal idea. The Abrahamic covenant, we're, we're free because we're his seed. And ironically, they were talking to his true seed. Jesus responded by telling them that they would be doing the works of Abraham if they were really children of Abraham. 
And then they up their claims. Okay? We'll say that about Abraham. All right. We're the children of God. And then Jesus told them that they would love him if they were the children of God. Then he boldly proclaimed to them. So they've claimed to be Abraham's seed. Now they've claimed to be God's seed. And he has come back at them with basically the same response. If you were really the child, you would be doing the same as the father. And then he boldly proclaims to them, you are of your father, the devil. And what was the evidence for this claim? Your will is to do your father's desires. And he would go on, I'm not going to read all that, but he would go on to list out murder and lying and these sorts of things and thereby attribute these things of Satan to the Jews he was speaking with. All right, well, the same thing is seen in Christ's teaching here. Love your enemies. Why? Because in a sense, that makes us like God and thereby proves us to be his children. Here we see the true Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, Himself, doing what He taught us to do, and thereby proving what He said it would prove. As He hangs on the cross, dying, He prays for the forgiveness of the very ones who put Him there. At least according to the flesh. Now, uh, let's pick up back in Luke 23. We're just going to keep reading on. Uh, left off in verse 35. <clears throat> and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. So they're still mocking him. If, uh, if God really loves you, surely he'll deliver you. If you're really the Christ of God, save yourself. I'm mentioning this because this is going to come into play in a moment. Just hang on to it. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In fulfillment of scripture, Jesus is numbered among the transgressors. He's dying a criminal's death. So it comes as no surprise that he's crucified with criminals, with transgressors, one on each side. Both of these men were guilty of the crimes for which they were being put to death. It says the first was railing, or the Greek 
literally says he was blaspheming Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. <clears throat> this man was carnally minded, even as he was dying. All he cared for was this shot in the dark that maybe he would be delivered from physical death. He had no concern for whether Jesus was truly the Christ or truly a king or was about to truly receive a kingdom. Um, and, he, and he had no concern for it because he didn't believe it. Notice that Jesus answered this criminal not a word. This was not one of Christ's sheep for whom he was dying. And so he never called to him. But the other thief rebuked the first. Now, no doubt the Holy Spirit had to have instilled some understanding of whom Jesus was and the blasphemous nature of the first thief's words while they were hanging there. He had to. Up to this point, this man has lived a sinful life. And now his life and he's getting his just reward hanging there on the cross. And then something changes. He said, do you not fear God? This, this thief understood that as bad as their condition was at the moment, it could and possibly would be very much worse very soon. As bad as it was to hang on the cross, to feel the full wrath of the Roman Empire, that was nothing compared to the wrath of the holy God that was staring them in the face. Soon they would experience the same condemnation as that for which Christ was suffering before their eyes under the eternal wrath of God. Do not or do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The thief understood that what was happening to him and apart from a miracle what would soon happen to him was just he deserved it. It wasn't pleasant, it hurt, but he deserved it. He also understood Jesus didn't. He didn't deserve it. He was innocent. Both these men deserved the wrath of the Roman Empire and the full wrath of the Holy God for their sins, but Contrary to the first thief who was blasphemously made, uh, making a carnal plea for salvation, this thief does not ask to escape from the cross that he bore. Rather, from a sincere heart, he pleaded with Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here is this man, Jesus, 
He's been severely beaten and mocked. He's hanging on a cross next to this thief. And both of them are dying. From all worldly, sinful, fleshly appearances, there was no reason whatsoever to believe Jesus was a king or that he would ever receive a kingdom. The carnally minded could not receive such a thing. And yet, this man cries out for mercy from the Lord in genuine faith and thereby revealing he understood he's really a king. He's really about to receive a kingdom. And he's really my only hope that I'm not about to face the eternal wrath of a holy God. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And his request was granted. Jesus answers this criminal, Truly, I say to you, which means on my authority, Today you will be with me in paradise. In the, first say, uh, in the first saying of Christ on the cross, we considered Jesus had asked the Father to forgive his enemies. But here, Jesus forgives, receives, and saves one of his own. This man had lived a horrible, sinful life to get to this point. You would not think this would be one of the ones that was chosen for eternal glory in heaven. He was. He tells the thief, not only are you not going to suffer for eternity, not only will I lessen your punishment, but today, this very day, in which you hang here dying with me, you will be with me afterwards in paradise. Eternal bliss. I'm paying for your sins. You're still going to suffer the temporal punishment of the Roman Empire for your crimes against the state. I'm not taking you off the cross any more than I'm taking myself off the cross. I'm suffering the wrath of Almighty God on your behalf. The righteousness that you have rightly seen in me will be imputed to your account. You will be with me today and forever in heavenly glory. Now, uh, if you're following along, flip over to John chapter 19. And uh, this is going to pick up in verse 23. John 19, picking up in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were, not Peter, not James, not Thomas, 
his mother. And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The men, minus two, men that he had poured into had run away. They were watching from afar. Cowardly. One of them was his betrayer. He was dead. The other one was there. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Again, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's been beaten. He's bloody. He's been humiliated. He continues to be mocked as he hangs there. But he lifts up his eyes and they meet through the eyes of his mother. Years before, Mary had been warned in a prophecy. Here it was, that moment that a sword would pierce through her own soul. Jesus looks at his mother as she suffers, watching him, her firstborn son, agonize on the cross. And he's moved with genuine care and compassion for her, the one that raised him. In keeping with his father's commandment to honor thy father and mother, that your days may be long in the land, he looks at her and says, Woman, behold your son. This was not a statement of, hey, look at me and my humiliation as I fulfill the law and make atonement for the sins of many. It wasn't pointing to himself at all, actually. Rather, it's a moment in which he makes provision for his mother that she will be cared for in his absence, his bodily absence from this earth. Evidently, Joseph had passed away at some point. When the husband dies, the kids take going away. He didn't forget his mom. He didn't forget the command of his father. He turns to the disciple whom he loved, the apostle John, and he says, behold your mother. And John understood full well what the Lord meant by this. And so from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. At Christ's command, John was blessed to care for the mother of Jesus as if she were his own mother from that day until the day she died. He didn't forget mama. Now we've read this this morning, but let's turn back to Matthew 27. <clears throat> Verses 45 and 46. The 
Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sapachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Uh, to give you an idea of what Jesus was doing with these words. Okay, if I start singing this. Amazing grace. What's the next thing? Right? What comes next? What's in your mind? I'm betting it's. How sweet the sound, right? The Psalms were the hymns of the Jews. Here Jesus was taking this psalm, Psalm 22, our call to worship this morning, and applying it to himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew full well why the, why the Father would, in a sense, forsake him in this moment. We read in Habakkuk a few weeks ago that God is of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And here, the sins of the elect were placed upon Jesus as if he were the one who sinned. Divine justice was poured out from heaven upon his head and he incurred the full wrath of God against the sin of his people. Scripture says, For our sake the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so here, he's been made sin. And so in that sense, yeah, he's forsaken. But again, we read this whole psalm this morning, that is not, that is not the only thing that's in play here. By using the first words of the psalm, Jesus was applying the entire psalm, not just the first verse, to himself. In Mark we read, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And we read in Luke that they said, If God favors him, surely he'll save him. Well, by applying Psalm 22 to himself, Jesus is answering his enemies as to why he does not come down from the cross. This is, first of all, so that the scripture about him would be fulfilled. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. These teachers of Israel, these ones who are supposed to be teaching God's people God's word, are fulfilling God's word as the enemies of God. 
But consider what else Jesus was saying in applying the psalm to himself. The psalm does not end with just him being the suffering servant, the sacrificial king of Israel, defeated and dead. That's not where the psalm ends. It says things like, God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And it says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And it says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. In other words, Jesus was saying, I endure humiliation and suffering now that I may have exaltation and vindication by my Father in my resurrection. You mock me now, but the day's coming when all the families of the nations will worship before me. So stand at the foot of my cross. Spit on me. Make fun of me. Because this is not the end of my story. And indeed, it is his story. All of this. Think about that for a minute. He's hanging there. And he's admitting and he's talking about, yes, I, I'm forsaken in a sense. But at the same time, claiming victory. All right. Flip back now to John 19. <clears throat> now we're going to be picking up in verse 28. So, John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, again, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. <clears throat> no doubt Jesus was physically thirsty at this moment. Uh, again, he was beaten to a bloody pulp and then he was hanged on a tree for hours, slowly suffocating. That's just the physical pain. That doesn't take into account the emotional distress he was in. In fact, prior to that, he had been in the garden sweating drops of blood. To say he's dehydrated is quite the understatement. So he says, I thirst. But then John includes an interesting comment, which I hope has been clear throughout the this sermon today, as well as last week, um, and through all of his sayings. Jesus says that this is to fulfill Scripture. Specifically, this, I thirst, this fulfills Psalm 69.21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink so even at this his last moment as he hangs there dying on the cross Jesus is concerned 
that all the scripture which points to him should be fulfilled to the most minute detail. I said this last week and I'll say it again. Jesus had the absolute highest regard for scripture and so should we. This brings us to the next and my personal favorite of the sayings of Christ on the cross in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. We talked about this a lot over the last week. On last Sunday, on Wednesday, we talked about this. Jesus came with a singular mission in mind. And that was to accomplish the will of the Father. In eternity past, there was a covenantal agreement within the Godhead whereby the Father agreed to give a certain people to the Son and the Son agreed to save them. The 1689 Baptist Confession describes it this way. God was pleased in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them to be the mediator between God and humanity. And then the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office to discharge it. He was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. All these references to scripture, perfectly fulfilling the law. He also experienced the punishment that we deserved and that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse for us. And now Jesus, knowing he has kept the covenant of redemption as to his deity and the covenant of works as to his humanity as the last Adam, cries out, finished. It's accomplished. All is accomplished. The law has been fulfilled. Here is perfect righteousness. Finished. As one commentator put it, he brought about the completion of all the Old Testament prophecies, symbols, and foreshadowing about himself. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Malachi, there are 300 detailed prophecies about the anointed one, Jesus, which are fulfilled by him. End quote. Is finished. Righteousness is completed. Our salvation is secured. It is finished. And it can't be undone. You want assurance of salvation? There it is. If you're joined to Christ, it is finished. Now finally, this final saying, we return back where we started, Luke 23. This is verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, 
He breathed his last. So, having accomplished all that the Father sent him to do, Jesus showed both his complete control over his life because he committed his spirit. No one took it from him. So he shows his complete control over his life and his complete trust in God. It was just as he said. He laid down his life for his sheep. He laid it down. No one took it from him. And as we're about to see, he also took it up again. But for now, he calls out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus would then be taken down from the cross. Not a bone of his body was broken in fulfillment of scripture. And he was buried in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, in fulfillment of scripture. And then, something happened while we're here this morning. We're not here to lament the death of Jesus. We're not here to sorrow and wallow in defeat. Look in Luke 24. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and um, bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you see the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you? While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? They remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, you want a testament to the historicity of this? In that day and time, it was sinful, it was wrong. I'm not trying to in any way condone it. But in that day and time, the testimony of a woman meant nothing. The idea would have been it would take the testimony of 100 women for uh, to be equal to the testimony of one man. Because somehow women are notoriously unreliable or something like that. Not condoning it. It was wrong. Okay, <laughs> I'll start to throw things at me. I didn't say it. But that was the way that it was viewed. So if you're making up a story, right? 
you're not going to say that the people that we don't believe just because of what gender they are were the first ones that saw him. I think that's a great testimony to the historicity of this because you know why it says that? Because that's what happened. <gasps> that's why. Um, I'm not going to read this entire chapter for the second time, but Jesus meets a couple disciples on the road to Emmaus and he... Um, they don't recognize him, and he kind of goes through the uh, entirety of the scriptures at that time, which is what we call the Old Testament, and he shows them uh, a thing that was the scripture says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Basically, we get a nice, uh, uh, a nice little Bible lesson with the resurrected Jesus, except in ignorance. And then uh, they sit down to eat and he breaks the bread and suddenly their eyes are opened and oh, that's Jesus. And then picking up in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. They were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. Here's another reason why you know that this is a historical account. Because the heroes that wrote this look like bumbling idiots. They're shocked, even though he told him uh, he told them over and over again, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer, and then the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. And when it's happening, it's like, wow, you know, and, and it is. But it's not like he didn't say that. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, Christ should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. By the way, the promise is the Holy Spirit. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. Turned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. And that's where he's at now. He's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Making intercession. I want to close with an invitation. Jesus is not dead. He 
is risen as he said he would. If you don't know the hope that lies in Christ, you can. Who is the penitent thief? Realize your sinful estate for the holy God and the wrath that's coming your way. Fall upon Jesus. Place your full trust, your full faith in him. He alone has the righteousness that can carry you to heaven. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Including the authority to save the sinners from who, for whom he died, like you and me. You're not too sinful for him to save. You're not too righteous that you don't need him to save. We can find our hope and our assurance in this. It's finished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we've read about and discussed here this morning. This is what makes us your people. Without our mediator, without our high priest, our prophet, and our king, we would be hopelessly lost and under your wrath. And we acknowledge that and we thank you. You didn't leave us in that state. We thank you that you sent your only begotten Son to take the wrath that we do deserve on that cross. Beaten, bloodied, bruised, dehydrated, mocked, abandoned, all the things that we should receive. And yet he received it for us. And not only that, we receive his righteousness as if we were the innocent. I don't even know how to put it into words. What a glorious thing this is. But we thank you for it. We lift high the name of Jesus today. In his name we pray. Amen.